will be reading today from Romans 3, verses 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. The 2002 Ligonier Ministry uh, State of Theology Survey recently came out, and it, it is a sounding board to find out what people who claim to be evangelicals believe in America. And by evangelical, they mean people who believe the Bible is our authority, that Jesus Christ is the way to salvation, and that people need to actually convert and become Christians. And so um, every five or 10 years, I don't know how often this comes out, but every time when the survey, the results come out, I fall into a depression to hear about the state of evangelicals. And this year, um, one of the most stunning numbers was the survey revealed that 65% of professing evangelicals believe that people are born innocent. 65% of evangelicals believe people are born innocent. That is, two-thirds of those who associate themselves with the message of the Bible and the person of Jesus Christ as Savior think that human beings are by nature good. 
or at the very least, neutral. Is that the message that you just heard my sister Renee read from this microphone? That people are basically good, naturally innocent. I'm afraid those 65% would have a difficult time receiving the message that we heard from Paul in the first 20 verses of the third chapter of Romans. And Paul himself would not be surprised because he knew that the very first people who read this letter that he wrote would have problems with what he was saying and well as well. In fact, the entire passage that we study today is Paul answering objections that he knows will be raised by the truths that he's delivered in the first two chapters. And so today, in Romans 3, we come to the end of Paul's presentation of the bad news. That all human beings rightly deserve not salvation, but judgment from God. And to explain how this works today, I'm going to probably get lost in a baseball analogy. Please forgive me. The playoffs began in the major leagues on Friday. I'm a little bit excited. One of my teams is gone, the St. Louis Cardinals. Be nice to my dad today. He's a little bit sensitive. <laughs> but the Mariners are still alive. So we're doing okay. I asked my wife if it would be okay to use a sports analogy, and she said, no, please don't do it. All of the women in the building roll their eyes when you launch into one of those. So I bounced it off a few other people. Uh, one of my friends said, yeah, it's, it's good, but don't overdo it. So Daniel, we'll see if that checks out. Um, and another good friend said, I'm a coach. They're awesome. So here, here goes my baseball analogy. Imagine with me that God is on the mound throwing pitches, and each pitch is his revelation to the batter that is mankind. So we're in the batter's box. God is throwing pitches, trying to reveal himself to us. And the Apostle Paul has sat himself up behind the catcher. He's wearing blue, and Paul is the umpire. He's calling balls and strikes, and he's explaining what has transpired with each pitch. And so the first pitch that God throws to human beings is the revelation that we see in creation. We saw this in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul said, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So God has revealed himself to everyone in the things that he's made, in creation, in looking around us. But mankind saw creation, and they refused to swing. They instead suppressed the truth. They treated the obvious strike like it was a ball, and they rebelled against God's revelation. And instead, Paul shows us in Romans 1, they gave themselves to twisted worship and perverse behavior, and the umpire, the Apostle Paul, yells, strike one. 
pitch number two, we see in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says that for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Pitch number two comes in the form of conscience. God has revealed to all human beings that there is a basic right and wrong in the universe. It is built into us. We know it. That voice in your head that's constantly either saying, this is a good thing to do, this is a bad thing to do, and when your conscience says this is a bad thing to do, then you start arguing with your conscience and say, well, it's okay to do this thing in this instance, this time, because of blah, 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 we're violating our conscience. That's what we do. Oftentimes, we don't obey our conscience. We rebel against what we know to be right. We convince ourselves that the strike, again, was actually a ball just off the outside corner of the plate. But the umpire is not convinced. He knows better, and the Apostle Paul yells, strike two. And then last week, Dylan showed us pitch number three in Romans chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. He said, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law. So they have God's will. They've been instructed by him. And then in verse 20, he calls it, uh, the, he says, you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Pitch number three is God's revealed word. Special revelation. God has revealed himself to the Hebrews in great detail, his mind, his desires, his actions, his law, his covenant to the Jews. And did they obey his word? Were they faithful to the covenant God made with them, his chosen people? We saw that they were not. In fact, Paul said it in a pretty strong way in verse 23 of chapter 2. He said, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's about the worst thing he could say to them. You guys who represent God to the Gentile world, you Hebrews, you are making them condemn God's name. You're not making God look good. You're making him look awful. They swung at the pitch. They practiced circumcision. They claimed to teach others. They claimed to be a light in the darkness a guide to the blind, but they missed the ball, even though they swung. And now, just like you might see a jilted batter who believes they've received injustice from the friendly man in blue behind the plate, they turn around now and plead their case. Maybe they think they got a piece of the ball, a foul tip, and they deserve another pitch. But some of you have played baseball or have played any sport have you ever argued with the umpire or the referee and they changed their mind? Have you ever seen that happen? Ever? The umpire standing there and says, hey, you know what? You've got a really good point. I'm sorry about that. Hey, bring him back out here. This guy gets another pitch. My bad, pitcher, sorry. 
he had a good point. That never happens, ever. And umpire Paul isn't budging either. And so in chapter 3, he begins, or continues really, this diatribe, which includes a rapid firing of five questions or objections that he knows Jews will have regarding his message so far in the letter. And, and these might be questions that Paul has heard over and over in doing gospel ministry in the last 20 years. And they might even be questions that he himself had of Christianity before he actually became a Christian. You might remember Paul was pretty hard on Christians before he was one. And so I do want to warn you, the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3 are a bit of a mess. And they're mostly a mess because Paul gives better answers to all of these questions later in the book of Romans. And so I'm going to throw out now what I'll call and we'll consider loose ends and leave it to Pastor Dylan to give more satisfactory answers as they come up later in the book of Romans. So if any of these questions really bug you, I hope he doesn't let you down. <laughs> hmm. So on to the loose ends. We'll look at question number one. In verse one, Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? In other words, he's saying, he hears the Jews saying, Paul, are you saying that God's covenant, the old covenant with the Jews was worthless? What was the point of all of that? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David. Did it have no value? And admittedly, Paul had just said something quite radical at the end of chapter 2, and he was essentially redefining what it meant to be a Jew. In verse 28 of chapter 2, he says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. In Paul's mind, to truly be a Jew, one of God's people, is to have a circumcised heart, not a circumcised body. Belonging to God's people is a work of the spirit, not a work of of the flesh. And here Paul gives a light nod in the direction of the new covenant, which was promised in the Old Testament scriptures, and knows that it will lead them to ask, well, if we need a new covenant, what was wrong with the old covenant? And unfortunately for today, he does not respond with a deep examination or explanation of how Christ fulfilled the old covenant. He doesn't respond by telling them how much better the new covenant is, both for Jews and for Gentiles. He doesn't hand them the book of Hebrews. But he answers briefly, and I would say incompletely for now, with this in verse 2. To, the answer, uh, to answer the question, what advantage has the Jew? He says, verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. His, his answer is that the Jews have great advantages. And he says, for one thing, or first of all, the Jews were the people God spoke to. They were entrusted with special revelation. Gentiles had creation. They had their conscience. But in addition to these things, the Jews had the very words of God. 
They knew his character. They knew his nature. They knew of his mighty deeds of salvation and judgment throughout history. They knew his promises of salvation and redemption through the coming Messiah. How could you say that's not an advantage to know all of those things about who God is? And apparently, this advantage was so overwhelming that Paul doesn't list any others at this time. And it really seems like he's going to, because he does say, well, to begin with, and first of all, but he never gets to number two, or number three, or number four, because even in answering that question, he starts thinking about another question. Can anyone relate to this? I probably do this every single day. When I'm teaching my students, uh, one of them will ask me a question and I'll launch into something and, well, first of all, da-da-da-da-da, and then I'll see something in their face where they're like, okay, wait, you don't get this. And I'll come over, you're nodding your head too hard, students. Uh, and so we'll have talked about something for 25 minutes and then I'll actually have to ask them and say, okay, guys, where are we? How did we get here? And they're usually, they can backtrack and we can figure out where we started and get back on track. But I understand how even sometimes I think you know, being led by the Holy Spirit, we can chase rabbits and get off track. And I think the Apostle Paul is being led by the Spirit here to move on to something else. Remember, uh, Peter says in one of his letters, he says, gosh, Paul's hard to understand. <laughs> so... I think it's okay. I'm not undermining the authority of the scriptures here or the inspiration of Paul just to say this is kind of how Paul rolls sometimes. So he pauses and doesn't get back to it. And then he gets, he asks another question in verse three. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And so his question here is, wait a minute, Paul, are you saying God is actually unfaithful to his word? to rescue these people, the Jews? Because if God's chosen people are unfaithful to him and they've dishonored him by breaking his law, isn't that primarily God's failure to be faithful to them? Isn't this God's fault? And Paul responds with a little bit of verve here. Our English doesn't do it justice. He says, uh, what is, how does he say it? Um, verse four, by no means. Now, if you say by no means, what do we think of you? Like, you're a dork. You're smart. Like, by no means. Uh, come on. Uh, that's not really what Paul's saying here. This is actually one of the commentators said, um, by no means, this actually needs a little more violence to the no. This is a violent, angry no. So just think of the harshest way we could possibly say no, maybe with a fist on the pulpit and shouting no. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, heck no. Angry in the Koine Greek. Paul's adamant here, and he says, human unfaithfulness does not undermine God's faithfulness. He continues in verse 4, by no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. If every Jew turned out to be a liar, that means unfaithful, did not keep God's covenant, God would still be found to be true and honest and faithful to his word, right? Their faithlessness does not undermine the faithfulness of God at all. And then Paul quotes from a psalm to explain just how God has been faithful 
to his word, and it is a psalm. He chooses a psalm that's written by a Jew, an Israelite, that these objectors would surely have held in very high regard. He quotes a psalm from King David, and the psalm comes from Psalm 51, which is David's famous prayer of repentance after forcing a woman to commit adultery with him and then having her husband murdered and then being called out by a man serving as his prophet for his sin. And this is how King David responds. I'm going to read from Psalms instead of the proverb here and get a little bit fuller picture because I want you to to see David's heart toward his sin. Psalm 51, I'm just going to read the first four verses, although I want to read the whole thing because it's so good. He says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That last portion is the part that Paul puts in his letter to the Romans, that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judgment. I think we see here, this is how we should respond to our sin when someone accuses us of sin. David knows that God's faithfulness to his word does not just mean his faithfulness to save them, to provide salvation. But God's faithfulness to his word also means faithfulness in giving judgment. That is who God is. So David says, I sinned against you. It is evil. It is vile. And whatever judgment you hand out will be fair. I deserve it. You are a just God. You're not evil. You're not unfair. You're not vindictive but you are righteous when you judge. Please have mercy on me. He's not saying God's wrong to judge him. He's just saying, please give me mercy. I deserve everything you can give. That's the point Paul's trying to draw out here, that God's judgment on sinners is faithfulness to his word. His promised judgment to his people when his covenant is violated proves his righteousness. It proves his faithfulness. But the weasel-like people in Paul's head who probably have real faces, and he can tell you what town they're from, and have probably thrown rocks at him before. These weaselly people with their arguments and objections won't stop coming. And the Jews, he imagined, won't properly embrace their guilt. They won't cry out to God for mercy and salvation, but they want to keep arguing with the apostolic umpire. And so Paul gives them one more question, really two, and I'll combine them. And this question, he believes, goes a little bit too far. And we see that in Romans chapter 3, verse 5. I'm going to read through verse 8. Paul says, and this is in their voice, the opposition's voice. I'll let you know when we switch back to Paul. It's kind of confusing. But they say, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God... What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then Paul even says in parentheses, he's embarrassed of talking this way. He's like, I speak in a human way. I'm talking like those sinful fools. And then he answers, by no means. 
For then how could God judge the world? And then he's back to their argument. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So the argument they're making here, they're saying, so Paul, it sounds like you're saying my sin actually serves to glorify God. And so if my sin brings glory to God, then really, should he even punish me at all? It seems like I'm helping. My sin makes God look good, right? You're welcome, God. I guess I should sin some more. Because the more I sin, the more righteous you appear. And keep in mind, the objectors don't really believe this. Okay, this is slander. They don't believe this. They're building a straw man argument making an argument, making someone say something that they're not really saying because it's easy to tear down. Remember what they think is, they think they can save themselves by obeying God's law. And when they hear in the preaching of Paul, what they hear in Paul's preaching is an invitation to live however you want. They're reasoning if people aren't saved by good works, then God must not care how we live at all. And Paul's answer here is simple. He doesn't give them much time on this one. He says, how could I believe God would judge anyone if I thought this? And then he continues, he says, and if you think I believe this, your condemnation is just. This is kind of his hardest word to them here. Your condemnation is just. In other words, um, speaking of judgment, if that's what you're telling people I'm saying, your judgment is coming soon. You deserve what is coming your way. And so, like I said, Paul doesn't give extensive answers to these questions. Uh, to the question, what is God's relationship to the Jewish people after the new covenant, after Christ? Uh, Paul's going to answer this one much more thoroughly in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And to the question of, does the gospel of grace encourage people to sin and live in an evil way? He's going to pick this up in Romans chapter 6, so I'm going to punt to Dylan on those, but in verse 9 of Romans chapter 3, Paul begins his final argument aimed at silencing the objections, all right? He's done arguing, and uh, he returns to the first question, and I believe in this text, you already heard it once this morning, I believe Paul drops the hammer hard on all human beings. And what we'll get to at the end is he will say, this should shut your mouth. There are no more objections before the throne of God. Um, maybe the hardest hammer drop I, I see in the scriptures. Maybe, maybe Jesus going after the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 13 is, is pretty hard. There are some pretty harsh words from the prophets, but this is a hard word. And so this umpire will now send the batter and all batters scampering into the dugout for shelter. Verse 9. The question, again, on the objector's mind. What then? Are we Jews any better off? So he asked the same question again. He asked about advantages, but he says, at the end of all this talk, it doesn't sound like we're better off, Paul. And in the first verse... Paul's answer was that in light of value, in light of advantage, in light of privilege, that he answered, yes, Jews are much better off. He said in many ways. 
Of course you have the advantages. You had the clear and direct revelation of God. You had the easiest pitch to hit. The Jews have the advantage. But even being the keepers of God's word does not give them immunity from judgment. That's the word Pastor Dylan used a few weeks ago. They thought they had immunity from God's judgment, but they do not. And so when you weigh it over against the Gentiles according to guilt rather than advantage, the Jews are found to be in the same predicament because both Jews and Gentiles have rebelled against God's revelation to them. And that's what he says. He gives them a different answer in verse 9. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That phrase, under sin, is powerful. It is a, a term of power. It is saying they are subject to the power of sin in their own hearts. And from this point, the next several verses, the next nine verses, Paul sets off an avalanche of Old Testament scriptures. He's just grabbing one after another and throwing them in a pile, intended to convince his Jewish contenders of what Martin Luther called the bondage of the will. The bondage of the will. Paul did not believe that human beings had a free will in the sense of the free and unhindered ability to choose the good and reject the evil. That's more like what uh, the wrong answer evangelicals chose at the beginning of this when they said that they thought uh, human beings are basically neutral or basically good. We're not born with a sinful nature. We're born, we can do good or we can do bad, but we, get, we are free to decide. We're unhindered. Paul doesn't believe in a free will in that sense. Yes, of course, he believes we can make decisions and that the decisions we make have consequences. Um, we all understand this already, but our will is tainted. Adam and Eve had a free will in the true sense, but ever since the fall, human beings are far from spiritually neutral, no matter how many evangelical Christians check the wrong box. Our nature, Paul says, is one of being enslaved to sin. And he'll teach that later in this letter. So just how pervasive is this human bondage to sin? Paul says that sin has corrupted every human mind and heart. Sin fills our tongues and sin ravages our society. So get ready. This is nasty. Beginning in verse 10, we see that sin infects every human. Now, we've, we've gone through a few lists of sin in the book of Romans already. And uh, Dylan has... Uh, made it a habit to say, we are on the list, we are on the list. See if you think you can squeeze your way out of this list, okay? I dare you. <laughs> Verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless no one does good, not even one. Do you think you're there? If Paul's opponents still hadn't gotten the point about their condition before God, then hopefully these key words will help them out. I'll go through them again. None, not one, no one, no one, all together, 
No one, not even one. Are we coming in clear? So, what is it exactly? We'll just walk through this slowly. (laughs) What is this exactly that no one, no one, no one, no one, none, not even one, not even one do? Well, we aren't righteous. We don't understand God. We don't seek for God. We don't turn toward God. We don't do good. And if there's one thing on this list that's positive, that Paul is, it's actually something that we do. The thing that we do is that we become worthless. This is the natural state of every human being apart from the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe this is who we are without Jesus. Do you believe this is who you are without Jesus? Can you point to the wicked man and say, there, but for the grace of God, go I. If it weren't for the intervening grace of God, I'd be just like that person. Can you really say that and mean it? And if you can't, then please let God be true, though everyone else were a liar. This is a picture of what theologians call total depravity. And total depravity does not mean that every single person is as evil as they could possibly be. It's never meant that. Total depravity simply means that every part of us is tainted and twisted by sin. We're messed up. Every one of us, all of us. Next, Paul tells us that our mouths tell the truth about this fact. Our mouths condemn us. Verse 13 and 14. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Those aren't very nice things to be called. Open grave throats. He says that our mouths give vent to deadly evil intentions in our hearts and that our words actually bring death and harm to other people. And he's quoting Psalm 5, verse 9, which implies that the secret intent of our words is destruction. We want to hurt people. We want to destroy with our words. And truth is not on our lips, and we aim to deceive others, Psalm 5 says, by flattering them. Is that the sin of the tongue that you thought was on the way? Flattery. It turns out that hateful, angry, harsh words aren't the only way that we can destroy others. We can do just as much damage through manipulative compliments and praise, telling people what they want to hear despite the truth. Paul also quotes from Psalm 140, verse 3, saying that we have snake venom lips. Another phrase probably not to call your wife today. Snake venom lips. He refers 
to wicked men using their words to stir up war and violence and strife. This one should hit home too. If our mouths are always looking for a fight, for an argument, if we're always looking to disparage or slander other people, then here we are, venom lips. He quotes Psalm 10, verse 7, and says that there are those whose mouths are full of bitterness and cursing because they don't think that God sees or is going to really judge them. Unless we forget, Paul has already mentioned the sin of gossip, speaking poorly about someone who's not there. He's already put gossip on the same list in league with homosexual acts and murder as displays of what blatant rebellion against God looks like. James says our tongues are on fire with sin, set on fire by the flames of hell, because today we'll sit in this room and we will sing praises to God at church. And then we'll get in our cars and maybe on the way home, maybe at the restaurant, we will use the same tongue to trash people and speak ill of them or go off on somebody on social media as if they're not a person that's made in God's image. And Paul ends this scriptural assault by proving that depraved individuals tend to set up societies that are cesspools of evil as well. In verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. He's quoting Isaiah 59 here, which portrays a society ruled by chaos, injustice, and it's filled with evil thoughts leading to evil actions. In the preface, the, uh, Isaiah 59 is prefaced with this theological truth in Isaiah 59 too. He says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's what God thinks about our cultures, about our societies set up in rebellion against him. We're corrupted by sin, it fills our mouths, and it reigns in our cities and states and nations. Because this fact is always true. If we disregard and dishonor God, we will disregard and dishonor one another. They're connected. If we disregard and dishonor God, we will disregard and dishonor one another. And then the last Old Testament quote that he gives gives us the why. Why are we this way? He quotes Psalm 36, 1 in verse 18. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. When David actually writes the psalm, he says before that, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The problem with the world is that humanity does not fear God. We refuse to give him the honor and thanks he deserves, and we live instead as if we rule the earth. John Stott said it this way. He said, sin is the revolt of the self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, 
Sin is self-deification. The reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. This is us. We want God's job, and we aren't qualified, and the results speak for themselves. And with this litany of verses poured out before us, Paul believes that he can rest his case. He believes the arguments against God's law should cease, and that's exactly what he says in verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Whatever law you've been given by God, you did not keep it. Our mouths are closed. We have no argument to make. We have no defense. The Jews thought that having God's word could save them, but instead all it did was show them how bad they needed to be rescued. Martin Luther understood this principle better than most in the history of the church, and he said this about the law. He said the principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it showed them their sin, and that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace, and so come to that blessed seed who is Christ. If you are humbled and terrified by what God owes you for your sin, please know that you are in a very blessed place. I mean that. If you hear all of these sinful condemnations today and this makes you want to run to Jesus, the law has had its intended effect. Sprint to Christ for mercy and grace and peace. And if you've stumbled into this building today and this is the first biblical message that you have ever heard, or the first that you've heard in a long time, then please know this is only half of our message. This is the bad news. We have good news also, and in fact, that's the part that we're most excited about and the part that I would much rather talk about and what we talk about a lot of the time, most of the time. We have good news. But you'll have to come back next week to hear it because that doesn't start until Romans 3, verse 21. Amen. That's the next verse. So lay low this week. I'm kidding. I'll give you a sneak peek without ruining Dylan's sermon. Verse 21. Don't listen to this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
God came down to earth 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ, and he put on human skin, and he obeyed all of God's commands like you can't, and he did it in your place. And then he died on a cross to take punishment for your sins. He did that in your place, and his good deeds get transferred to your account, not by earning them by being good, but just by trusting his good deed. That's good news. All your sins can be forgiven, and you can have peace and friendship with God by simply admitting your need and trusting in him. Like Pastor Jay said, you are worse than you think, and God is far better than you could ever imagine. If you want to understand this more, grab a Christian. You can grab me after church. You probably don't want to talk to me. I understand. But, hey, there are a lot of people who know Jesus in this place. Grab somebody, and they can help explain in more depth. I want to spend my final moments addressing Christians a little bit differently. I want to talk about how do we handle these hard truths, this bad news, in our world today. Because I realize that for most of us, it's not very fun listening to Paul remind us of our natural condition. And we agree with him. And we don't like to hear these things very much, right? And we agree. We put up our hands and say, yes, that's me. What about speaking these truths to the world who doesn't love Jesus or love God's word? Remember, the letter to Romans is the clearest systematic presentation of the Christian message or the gospel, the good news, in the entire Bible. And so I think we can learn something, not just from Paul's content, but also from his method. And so I want to talk about that for a few minutes. And the first application for how we Christians should handle, how should we deliver this bad news to the world, is I would encourage you to be thoughtful. Be thoughtful. And what I mean is we should care about answering people's questions and objections to the Christian faith. Evangelism is not just a packaged message that you come and drop and some automatic words that you just say to people like a robot. Find out what they think. Where are they coming from? What issues do they have with Christianity? What issues might they have with Christians in the past? A few weeks ago, we had some missionary guests come and speak to us about evangelism. And, and Jeff Reed told us a, a humorous story. Um, uh, Jeff has spent some of his mission time in India. They have a heart to reach India for Christ. And he talked about, some, about an Indian man coming up to him on the street and trying to evangelize him. And this Indian man talked to him for a long time about the gospel before Jeff let him know that, praise him, I believe, I'm on your team. And Jeff was really excited, like, man, I'm so excited that you care to do this. This is awesome. Like, he's praising God where God needs to be praised, right? But if this man would have asked some questions of Jeff, they could have had a lot different conversation, <laughs> maybe even more edifying, but he didn't ask the questions. I think sometimes people misuse Paul's words against Paul's example. For instance, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I was determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Therefore, don't do apologetics. 
Don't reason with people. You just say the magic words, Christ has been crucified and raised from the dead, and move on. Let the Holy Spirit sort them out. It is true. Paul's initial message in any new place was Christ crucified. Yes, I believe what Romans 1 said. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But at the same time, what did Paul actually do? He spent hours reasoning with Jews who believed the scriptures. He would argue about the scriptures with them. When he's with philosophers, he's speaking philosophically with them, trying to answer their questions. He's in the city with pagans. He's in the country. Paul anticipated, as we saw in this chapter, questions people had, and he sought to answer them. Some of us might be afraid of asking questions, and it's a lot easier to just say to people, don't worry all about that, it's faith, you just got to believe, just trust God, just don't turn your brain off and just trust God. No! If Christianity is true, we don't have to be afraid of questions. God can handle it. It is true truth, Francis Schaeffer used to say. It applies to every area of life. This doesn't mean we have to answer every question anyone could ever ask. But please don't assume that just because people are sinful, they don't have some honest questions that are in the way of them really considering the Christian faith. Sure, there are some people who are just hateful and are just hecklers. They're probably not worth messing with. I mean, they're worth messing with, but you're probably not going to get anywhere for a while. But a lot of people out there really don't understand Christianity. I've lived in a place where there were hardly any Christians. They had no idea how the gospel was different than any other religion. They think our message is, be good, and you can go to heaven and hate sinners. That's what most people think Christianity is out there in the world. Let's at least help them understand what exactly they're offered in Jesus Christ. And what the scriptures teach. Because as the survey results confirm, most people who believe the Bible is God's word don't really understand what it's saying. Be thoughtful. Let people ask questions. The second one is be courageous. Talk about sin. You have to talk about sin. Why did Jesus die on the cross? For our sin. The good news makes absolutely no sense without the bad news. Jesus did not die for good folks and nice gents. He saved wretches, the song says. If we think that we're fine and that God isn't the type who really cares how we act anyway, then the gospel of Jesus is totally irrelevant. And Jesus said only sick people go to the doctor. The problem is, everyone is spiritually sick, but most people don't even know it. It's not the most fun part of being a Christian, talking about sin to people. But sharing the bad news is an absolutely necessary part of sharing the good news. And I will tell you this, there's a certain kind of person that this is much more difficult for. And if you are a person who is terribly worried about offending someone, guess what? You probably won't because you're being so careful. You're kind. That's good. 
It might be just fear and cowardice, but it also might be humility and compassion. And we could use a whole lot more of that in our Christian witness. So be bold. Call people to repentance and be specific. No one goes to Dr. Jesus until they know their illness. Help them see their sin. And the last admonition from the example of Paul is be humble. Talk about your sin. Some of us, to a fault, have no trouble talking to the world about its sin. Might be one of our favorite things to do. And we have plenty of Christians who want to tee off on the sins of others, especially on social media. But if the world doesn't hear us speaking about sin as fellow sinners ourselves, then we are not portraying Christ in the proper light. If they don't hear us speaking about sin as fellow sinners ourselves, we're not doing Christianity. This is how Paul speaks. 1 Timothy chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy. 1 Timothy 1.15. saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. I'm not saying that every time you talk about the sins in the world, you need to make sure you throw in three of your own sins. I'm speaking more about an attitude of gospel humility in how we talk about sin to others. Do we speak about sin publicly or privately in a way that would make someone struggling with that sin come to us for help? Or do we, make, do we speak of it in a way that makes them feel far below us? I think I know which one is more common. If unbelievers are made to feel helplessly below us, then we are not speaking Christianly. We're not. Because if we truly believed that our gossip and our arrogance and our disobedience to our parents makes us deserving of hell, then that humble attitude should come out when we're talking about homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, murder, and invasions of other countries. And it's true, I'm not promising you results it's true that sometimes we can speak the truth lovingly and humbly and still get angrily rejected. But giving sinful humans new hearts is God's work, not ours. That's not our business. So let's make sure the word of God is what is offensive, not the attitude of our hearts. Amen. Because people can tell. If people think we're calling them to come and be good people like us, 
They aren't interested, and we aren't presenting Christianity. But if people know that we are sinners too, absolute messes worthy of hell, they just might want to join us. None is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. Not 